Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking to my friends, and I mean, I don't even know how many things you do. Climatology, you do, uh, Mike, you study your biology, limnology, microbial ecology. <laughs> You're basically a, a scientist who knows some stuff. Um, Alex Medviev, uh, welcome to the podcast, Alex. Uh, hello, John, and thank you for this yeah. introduction. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're, you uh, you are one of one of my one of my friends that uh, I talked to you, and I realized that all of these people in uh, in the media and on in social media land who talk about uh, climate change and they have strong opinions about these things. Uh, when you you're one of the people that I talk to, and when you explain how something actually works, I realize that ninety percent of the people who are having strong opinions about this thing, you know, yes, I believe in climate change. Okay, explain it to me. <laughs> they can't. <laughs> like, oh, I think climate change is a hoax. Explain it to me. They can't. So it's uh, it just kind of wakes me up to how complicated a lot of these things actually are. Uh, but maybe sort of there's two main questions that I wanted to to talk to you about, and I think are 
listeners would really benefit from. Uh, one is sort of um, the basic sort of position about why climate change. I mean, it's amazing to me that we still have to say this in 2021, but why uh, we know that climate change is happening and um, how we know that people are causing it. And then the second thing, the second main thing I wanted to sort of uh, talk to you about is, is just a basic idea of how the Northern carbon cycle works. But so maybe just as a kind of public service announcement, uh, why, why do you believe that climate change is happening and that, it's, that we are driving it? Interesting. Uh, actually, that's two questions. Mm-hmm. And one question is that uh, climate change is indeed happening. And for that question, uh, uh, well, we do have evidence, right? So, and uh, most of that evidence uh, is uh, just before our eyes. We don't need the scientists to really uh, understand that something happens which never happened before especially if you look at some Arctic regions. We clearly see changes uh, which are happening literally before our eyes. Myself, I was studying a region, uh, and I do have pictures, actually. I show them to students. Uh, One is taken uh, in 2010, and another one is taken at exact same place, uh, from a, not exactly the same helicopter, but uh, with the same angle, just four years later. And the difference is just amazing. Uh, you know that we're talking about Arctic, which means the environment is frozen normally. Right? And uh, some places, especially uh, those places which have lots of uh, ground ice, so the water which is frozen inside the land for uh, millennia, and it was remains of the ancient glaciations uh, during the past 20,000 years until it all disappeared about seven, 6,000 years ago, right? So since that, uh, all this area contains lots of ice which remains in the ground and was frozen for really thousands of years. And uh, with just few years of uh, really high uh, temperatures in the Arctic, we see as this ice uh, is melting. And it is very obvious because uh, it creates uh, small lakes on the surface. And we, uh, where we've seen like one, let's say, uh, flattened uh, mound of uh, icy ground in 2010. In 2014, we see a lake, and uh, I happened to measure some of them. And some of those lakes are, uh, well, by that time, we were already like 1.5, 1.7 meters deep. So it is something which really does happen very fast and uh, really before our eyes. So the presence of uh, climate warming in this sense, because uh, I really uh, am not a big fan of uh, 
talking about climate change in this context because climate change is a very generic term, right? It implies a lot of different things. It's, uh, climate is changing, but what exactly is changing? So we have change in temperatures, we have change in the precipitation patterns, we have change in uh, vegetation cover, many things. And uh, biodiversity is changing as well, right? Uh, some species uh, have to shift their uh, areas of uh, where they live. Uh, some species are, are simply disappear in certain areas. So there are quite a lot of changes uh, with quite different reasons and outcomes. And uh, I prefer, personally do prefer to uh, really point to very specific reason of change rather than saying that's climate change in total. So for uh, the outcomes which I've just described in the Arctic, when the ice is melting, ground ice is melting and lakes are being created, uh, the clear reason, the first reason is of course the climate warming, which uh, in fact is uh, happening much faster in the uh, Arctic than in everywhere else. If you have uh, on average on the planet climate change, which goes uh, by now with what, about uh, one, one point something uh, degree Celsius increase on average temperatures on a global scale, like a global annual average. In the Arctic, the same number is uh, over two, three, sometimes five, seven degrees. So that's a big difference, really. It's fast. So that is about climate change, which is happening. Uh, was I too? <laughs> no, that, that's great. That, no, 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 that was, that was great. That. I just, what do you, no, 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 that, that's great. I, I just, what do you say to people? Because I, I get this from my, from some of my friends and family from Alberta and you know the states and stuff like that, and they they say that um, well, you know, if you just take your own observation, then maybe you're going to say, oh well, it's self-evident that global warming is happening because you know I was in the helicopter and I took a picture, and then four years later from the same angle I took the same picture and. You know, lo and behold, you see this change, and so you say, "Well, um, clearly, you know, global warming is happening." But what do you say to people who say, "Well, maybe there are these cycles that are much larger that are happening um, over the over centuries or over millennia, and maybe uh, warming and cooling is just part of the normal cycle." And so you're seeing something as being obviously um, part of a trend towards global warming when in fact this could be just part of a regular cycle that we don't understand. Uh, there is a long answer to this question, uh, but a short one. Uh, like the sh shortest really cycle, which might indeed be uh, implicated in this kind of change of that scale, uh, is only happening, happening on a scale of about uh, 11,000 years related to the sun, right? And uh, the change we are looking at is happening over the uh, time period of, uh, well, 50 years, 
200 years as a global and uh, the one I talked about has happened over the scale of uh, five years. There's no cycle like that. <laughs> it's too fast. It's too extreme. Yeah. 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 So okay. That is, no, that's uh, that. That makes <laughs> that makes like a lot of a lot of sense. And what what about you know? Because I, you know, I, I yeah. still get this. I still get this from people because. You know, one of the things I've noticed about human beings in my 46 years so far is that if um, if somebody doesn't have any special interest in a particular question or topic, then, you know, if it's a smart person and they're interested, you can usually sort of present them with the various evidence and they will come to a reasonable conclusion. It, you know, it, it, maybe it's not the right conclusion, but it's a, it's a reasonable conclusion. But as soon as people um, have an interest in the answer, like as soon as like it, it maybe will cost them their job, you know, or something like that, then suddenly people don't are not very good at like evaluating the information anymore <laughs> so so if you ask if you ask somebody like like me who teaches at a sejap here in quebec if you ask a sejap teacher hey do you think the sejap system should continue to exist or do you think maybe it would be better if we got rid of it and we uh moved to just having like an extra year of high school and a extra year of university like they have in you know, the rest of North America and a lot of other places. If you ask yeah. that question and you, and you give them, and if you give them like good arguments in favor of both, um, I can almost guarantee you that 99% of Sejap <laughs> teachers will tell you that's a terrible idea, right? And so I see that very much with, with climate change that uh, my friends who work uh, directly or indirectly off of the oil patch and who make their living making like, you know, $180,000 a year as a driller or, or working on pipes for the tar sands and things like that, or working in one of the spin-off industries. They just, you know, climate change is not real. <laughs> and I'm wondering like, you know? Yeah, I, I understand. You know, uh, in my understanding, uh, these people are, in fact, right in their opinion for one simple reason, because uh, their perception, their modeling, their planning uh, goes like with uh, some governments uh, had for only four years. Uh, climate change wouldn't happen in four years such a way that will destroy their world. So for them, climate change doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably... That is potentially the most Russian answer you've ever given me in the entire time I've known you. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, yeah, no, you know, no I, get, I get your point. I get your point, yeah. Yeah. There is a fun fact, actually, about the uh, cycles which you were speaking of. I've just recalled that, uh, you know, the fun, the most fun part of all this uh reference to the global cycles, sun cycles, etc. So if you look at the uh, cycles in their current position, uh, for the past uh, about the half thousand, thousand of years, the Earth actually uh, supposed to be cooling. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not. <laughs> so, and it, no, it, it kind yeah. of goes a different way. <laughs> yeah, so that that's really that's really because I remember like one of the things that uh, one of my uncles said to me. He said, "Well, you know, you've you've heard about the little ice age of the 1950s." And um, and so I looked it up, and uh, yeah, apparently there was like a little bit of a a dip in global temperature, and they had longer winters and uh, heavier snowfalls, and they had lower temperatures and things like that for a couple of years. In the I think it was like the late 1950s, and there's been a number number of like sort of little uh, global anomalies, and so he pointed this out, and he said, "Well, this." It clearly proves, of course, it doesn't clearly prove, but we'll leave that alone. Um, he said, this clearly proves that there are cycles in global temperature that happen. And, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't get upset about this. But anyway, whatever. Um, no, uh, leaving. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just to uh, comment on that, uh, you know, uh, Actually, the one you talked about, uh, everybody noticed because there was no uh, really uh, a good yield of grapes in France at that year. So there was really a shortage of wine. And uh, of course, that was clearly noticeable. But <laughs> scandalous. More, more, yeah. <laughs> more often, people say uh, of Little Ice Age about uh, four or 500 years ago. And that one uh, was uh, quite more prominent. But if you call this a cycle, that means, well, the one which happened 50 years ago should have happened every 50 years then, but it didn't. And uh, it is similar to the one 500 years ago. So it might have been part of some cycles, but it not necessarily was. The point is that, there are some internal cross-related cycles, circulation-related cycles, because uh, these, these two specifically are likely related to those processes which are uh, as, uh, originated at the planet itself. We always have the ocean, right? And the ocean circulation over global, it takes about uh, one, 2,000 years. So within this, uh, let's say, uh, circle turn, you may always have some quasi, if I could say that, cycles or, or some uh, similar <clears throat> changes and prominent changes in uh, climate of the planet in general, simply because uh, these are uh, the processes which are uh, really related to the ocean and the ocean is a regulator of climate in many instances so these things happen but they're not related to some cycles outside of the planet some uh, orbital cycles at all and these are not cycles per se it's just some changes uh, which happen in the circulation but, yeah, you know, I've yeah. whenever whenever I've tried to whenever I've like this has come up in classes with students, I find that when you talk to students or you know most people in general, you can even talk to a bunch of drunks in a bar, like when you when you talk about the the ocean system and how that has this sort of regulating function for all of the uh, 
the climate, the global kind of climate, it, it just, for, for almost everybody, it just makes sense to them. It intuitively just makes sense to them. They're like, oh yeah, of course, this giant, big body of water that's sloshing around the planet and it's like redistributing heat and and cold to different regions to try and get like equilibrium. It makes sense to people. But we have another situation in northern Canada and in Alaska and in you know much of um, northern Russia and Scandinavia, which is that we have uh, you know this is one of the hats that you wear, right? You're a, a limnologist, which is a somebody who studies not not an oceanographer, but you're you're also that. But uh, but <laughs> somebody who studies who is somebody who studies inland waters. So we have yeah. this strange situation in places like northern Canada, where if you look at a map, it's just for a number of reasons, because of poor drainage, because of the Canadian shield, because of all the granite, you have terrible drainage in these areas. And so you just get these lakes, just the entire, an entire landscape that is just covered in like in bodies of fresh water. And my question to you, if this is possible to answer in a podcast um, is first of all, um, how do all of those freshwater, we're talking standing water for the most part here, um, how do all those freshwater ponds and lakes and how do they affect the climate? And, and also what happens when, to go back to your earlier point, when you have all these places way up in the north where the permafrost is melting and you have these new ponds and lakes, you know, that are like a meter and a half deep and, you know, whatever, em emerging all over the Northern Hemisphere. How do those affect our climate? So I guess that two-part question. Oh, no, it's much more parts. <laughs> <laughs> all right, shoot. Uh, well, first of all, we should see those lakes as... Uh, Latitudinally, let's say, and uh, I mean latitudinally in terms of really uh, Earth's latitudes. So they happen to uh, exist in very different climatic regions. That would be one reason for which they may all uh, act differently in relation to climate change, carbon cycle, etc. And when we're talking about climate change and uh, lakes affecting climate, uh, the first thing we probably will think of it's uh, the relation with carbon cycle, right? Because uh, that is how the long-term uh, effect of these lakes is uh, really manifests itself in the climate. Of course, there is some uh, kind of thermal regulation, but uh, it is a much uh, less scale and uh, more of a uh, with local effects more than global effects. On a global scale, of course, that is uh, the, uh, the relation with carbon cycle, which does make uh, real uh, feedback uh, to the climate system. And uh, in this case, lakes, let's say in temperate regions, lakes and uh, north, and uh, lakes in some uh, like tropical regions would act differently. That one reason. 
the second reason is uh, what actually uh, is the leg bed made of. It might be made of uh, like granite, and you will have this uh, low nutrient uh, oligotrophic lake, which uh, may have either no effect on carbon cycle at all, almost, uh, or uh, if it happens to uh, host some vegetation, some small vegetation, uh, it might even absorb carbon from uh, the atmosphere. On the other hand, you may have uh, lakes or uh, wetlands or some tropical even wetlands, which are uh, huge emitters of uh, carbon-containing gases and uh, carbon dioxide and methane in the first place. Okay, so so maybe I can just get, throw out a couple of examples and you can sort of categorize them. So I've I've had this experience in way up in northern Ontario, where you're you're, you're you know you're comfortably in the Canadian Shield, uh, and you which is this huge uh, for our listeners who are you know not, not it's, it's basically this big huge chunk of granite uh, that runs across <laughs> like. Uh, northeastern North America. Is that a fair description? It's More like, like, like a yes. giant, it's like, a, like a, giant, a giant shelf of like. That's you know, one of the reasons uh, why our uh, northern Quebec, northern uh, Ontario lakes, those which were frozen and now uh, created in permafrost, do not go too deep. They do not drain because of the shield which comes essentially like bedrock in about nine meters depths or some yeah. less or so so it's of course you're up yeah so way. i saw so, so i saw so i saw a lot of these lakes up there that are just you know crystal clear like absolutely crystal clear you can see right to the bottom it looks like just like a totally transparent and it looks to the naked eye it looks as if there is very little life in that uh, lake. You know, very little plant. And and the explanation that I was always told that was that oh, this was because of uh, a combination of uh, acid rain and and basically just not ha- like being a very nutrient poor uh, environment, and so there really wasn't very much for plant or animal life to sort of, you know, sustain itself. Is that, is that, you know, wh- why were those lakes so perfectly clear? I, I mean, I, I probably saw hundreds of them. Uh, look, uh, there are very, well, several things in what you just said. Uh, one is uh, quite sad, actually, because you were talking about the, Acid rains is a reason for uh, absence of uh, life in the lakes. It is said story. I hope it's not true for most of these lakes. Uh, the reason why, uh, well, I mean, uh, the lakes which are transparent does not necessarily devoid of any life. Uh, this is transparency is just one of the properties but it uh, does not mean that there is no life there. The microbial life is still there, and it might still be quite abundant. And uh, there might also be that uh, 
very clear and transparent lake. At this point of time, some uh, at some seasonal uh, moments may have uh, certain bacterial blooms or uh, phytoplankton blooms and uh, with some changes in the transparency as well. So that is also possible. But uh, as a general rule, yes, of course, if the lake is crystal clear, it likes, likely uh, has a low nutrient content, which is a good thing for lake. It will live longer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, what if, but what if you, you know, the, the, the second part, or at least from my conception, the second part of my question, the, what about like, because I know that, you know, I was just at the top of the mountain in Montreal here today. And it's very obvious to me that like when you have, like when the, the ground is all covered with snow, when we've had a lot of snow in the last couple of days, when the ground is uniformly white, um, it just reflects all of the sun's light up, right? And then if you have little patches, yes. if you have little patches that are, um, that are darker because it's exposed rock, or it's uh, an exposed body of water or something like that, then that absorbs the heat of the sun. And so you can see that those parts get warmer and you see melt and you see, you know, it's just very obvious to you that like this, uh, the sun's energy is, um, is kind of absorbing or not absorbing in a different sense. So if you have suddenly, like the first thing I thought when you were, talking before and you talked about how you know well, four years ago I was on the helicopter and I took a picture and I've shown it to my students in just the right angle and then it's totally different and suddenly there's these new lakes and they're you know a meter and a half deep the first thing I thought from just being on the mountain uh, two hours ago was doesn't that totally change the way in which the environment absorbs the sun's energy? Of course it does. Uh, more even, it uh, does change the amount of vegetation which is capable of living around it, especially for northern lakes like Arctic lakes. That's a huge difference. Normally, Arctic is devoid of vegetation, right? But uh, as soon as you have water, and uh, as soon as the water is uh, deep enough to... Uh, stay unfrozen for a winter and usually for arctic winters uh, here in northern quebec or ontario you only need depths of uh, about a meter um, slightly over a meter and uh, it always be, be uh, liquid water at the top of this lake so uh, the temperature will dramatically rise around the lake as well Accordingly, there will be way more uh, potential for the vegetation to grow around. And we also do see this happen. And as soon as the vegetation starts growing around, the surface albedo, right, the uh, amount of uh, <coughs> snow uh, reflecting ice, reflecting the uh, sunlight from that surface uh, dramatically decreases too. So, of course, this is a uh, affecting uh, the global energy balance and the local energy balance specifically too. Except uh, this will hit uh, 
the area even more. It's one of the feedbacks, so-called biophysical feedbacks, when you change it, or albedo uh, snow feedbacks, which does change the uh, really temperature conditions in this area. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> that's really intense. So, like, is this, to what extent would you say is this propelling the process in the north of, of warming? Well, uh, to be honest, it is uh, about the same speed as I saw the melting of the ice. <laughs> At another place where I used to walk uh, with uh, some kind of uh, shrub-like uh, vegetation about by the knee, uh, just five, no, six years later, I just wasn't able to pass through because the vegetation was grown above my uh, height. Wow. That's fast. It That's really, really fast. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned, because, you know, once again, right, like when I, when I mentioned this to, to people who are naysayers, you know, they'll say, well, you know, what's the, you know, I remember this one, uh, this guy that I, I've sort of fallen out of touch with him in recent years, but he was a big uh, supporter of Stephen Harper. And um, and I remember like talking to him about climate change and about the melting of the, the Arctic Ocean for longer periods of time during the year and all this stuff. And he said, look, what's the big deal? If, uh, if it becomes warmer up, up north, that means that's great for Canada. It's great for, it means that we're going to have Canada, Russia, Germany, and parts of Scandinavia, uh, Finland especially, are going to have longer growing seasons, which is going to mean that like all of these like really beautiful, beautiful soils in uh, northern Saskatchewan and Manitoba and parts of Alberta uh, and in Russia and Germany, all these parts that, that have like, you know, t- two meters, two, three meters of incredible topsoil. And the only reason why we've never grown things there is because we didn't have the magic number of frost-free days. And they say, well, because of climate change, suddenly you're going to have that. And so all of these countries are going to, have um are gonna have like much higher yields they're gonna be able to like it's gonna be like if we got in a time machine and we went back to like the 18th century when uh, europeans were just sort of going out to the prairies of canada and the united states and they were just like having these unbelievable yields right and they they say it's gonna be wonderful right um why is this, you say, in a lot of your work, a lot of your research, why is this not good for us? I mean, we know why it's not good for polar bears because, like, they don't have the they don't have the yeah. ice and they can't go um, and hunt seals. But, you know, some people say, you know what? Fuck polar bears, man. They eat people. <laughs> They're like, you know, like, you know what? Like, fuck yeah. polar bears. I don't care. Like, uh, and why is this, according to you, 
like really not good for humans. Just it's, uh, when you were explaining how uh, our Newfoundland shores will replace Caribbean shores for Canadians, uh, you didn't see me giggling. <laughs> 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 the reason for that that uh, there is a grain of salt in this uh, beautiful picture of our Caribbean future in Newfoundland. Uh, when the climate and uh, the temperatures become higher in the Arctic, the first thing which will happen is, as you can imagine, will be the melting of uh, ice and snow, right? And yes. uh, there is such a thing related to water molecules specifically called a latent heat. So when all this will be happening, uh, the latent heat will be absorbed. So specifically for uh, northern regions, and Canada would be the first candidate, uh, this large warming of that scale, we would have a wet and warm, uh, well, coolish and much more uh, wet weather instead of the Caribbean. <laughs> Simply because so we, of the we wouldn't uh, get large the sunny amount blue of, skies. Uh, we wouldn't get the unlikely. sunny blue skies. We would get like the rainy Ireland, like. But look, all this uh, melted, uh, well, melt water from all this uh, northern ice and snow, it should go somewhere, right? Where yep. would it go? <laughs> it would because, end up in the ocean? Uh, uh, well, before it ends up in the ocean, it will be in the atmosphere. And that atmosphere is uh, <laughs> the one which we live in, right? Yes. So <laughs> that's a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> other than that, of course, it's uh, not such a straightforward picture, even uh, with the uh, farming and uh, with the longer growing seasons. Because, uh, vegetation is not adapted to uh, these conditions. And uh, all kinds of crops, which we know, they are really uh, were developed historically in very specific conditions. That includes everything, the amount of sunlight, and sunlight wouldn't change, right? So the day and night, uh, they will stay the same. So if you uh, put those crops in just slightly different conditions, it does not necessarily mean they will uh, survive exactly the same way. Uh, well, I'm not supposed to say that. Actually, uh, we were just reviewing the uh, second order draft for the uh, next IPCC report. Board. And uh, it talks a lot about uh, all those adaptation uh, potentials for uh, natural vegetation to survive in uh, the changing uh, conditions, including temperature, including the amount of precipitation, and including the uh, actually a change in phenology. So, a change in phenology is does not necessarily mean that uh, all plants will uh, readily uh, go uh, blooming earlier. They have their own circadian cycles, and uh, which are not easily changeable. So uh, this picture is not that bright as it seems uh, from this description, really. 
it wouldn't be yeah. that easy to uh, go with all this change in uh, we cannot just put like uh, our uh, let's say temperate region 30 degrees uh, north yeah it well I, another sort of uh, another sort of like fly in the ointment or as you put it like the salt in the uh, another problem with this that you raised to me is that um, right now we have ecosystems in the world which are predicated and sort of calibrated to particular levels of carbon in the environment, right? That are, that are basically in, uh, in circulation, right? And, uh, you know, one of the things when we were driving uh, in that rented vehicle up <laughs> into the Laurentians <laughs> to, go, to go and get that Christmas tree in December, absolutely. It was one of the most fascinating conversations that I had in all of 2020 <laughs> but it was so it was so interesting but basically like what you said to me i remember was that um it's gonna be sort of analogous to when the spanish conquistadors you know burst into the aztec uh, empire into the into mexico mexico and they uh, you know, took over and they found this huge amount of of silver and gold, and they you know, were sending back entire ships back to Spain filled with silver and gold, and this basically flooded the global market with huge amounts of this supposedly like precious um, and, yeah, and limited exactly. substance. And it just caused massive instability all over the world. It, it caused instability all the way in China. It, it's 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 credited, uh, you know, uh, what's his name, the guns, germs, and steel guy, uh, Jared Diamond, uh, Jared Diamond, uh, Charles C. Mann in his book 1493. There's so many like books that that say that this. Uh, suddenly like flooding the market with all of this um, gold and silver caused uh, destabilized entire regimes that had been stable for a very, very long time. And so what you said to me was there's all this carbon that is stored up north in various places. I mean, there's carbon stored all over the world, but you said there's all this carbon stored up north and that global warming is going to release a lot of that. It's going to flood the market with all of this carbon. And you said this is just going to fuck all sorts of shit up. Can you explain to me and to our listeners why that is the case? Uh, that would actually answer uh, your uh, very first, well, very second question. Uh, why do we really sure that human do this and uh, climate change is truly related to human lives and human activities uh, the reason is very simple <clears throat> and the, the reason is uh, in the gas itself we're talking about carbon but carbon uh, especially in the atmosphere 
is in the form of gas. And uh, most of so-called greenhouse gases are uh, carbon-containing gases, like CO2, the one which lives the longest in the atmosphere up to the thousands of years, right? And the methane, which is uh, 25 times more potent greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide, but uh, fortunately doesn't live that long. It only lives like about 20, 25 years until it's uh, transformed either into the CO2 as well or into something else and somehow are removed. So uh, all these gases are uh, containing carbon. And at one point, uh, <clears throat> we started measuring them, right? There was a guy, the famous killing curve, uh, the guy who started to measure carbon in the atmosphere with flasks in the 50s, record or of uh, the amount of carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere that have all started. So why exactly those gases? That's related to the energy balance, right? So the reason of this warming is the really accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And the reason for that is just because the molecules which make those gases are uh, simply hem happen to be uh, the right ones uh, to uh, bounce the infrared radiation uh, back to the planet, right? How the planet is hit, it's uh, the sun hits the uh, ground, right? And uh, ground reflects the radiation, uh, but if it would be just that without atmosphere, we would be living in a, well, we wouldn't be living because the world would be uh, about 30 degrees uh, temperature than it is now. So uh, the atmosphere makes the, our world habitable with our average temperature of about, what, 15 degrees uh, Celsius approximately. So uh, the point is that uh, uh, the light is, uh, well, it acts as a particle, but also as a wave, right? So as a wave, it does have a frequency. And uh, it so happened that uh, infrared frequencies are uh, coinciding with uh, vibration frequencies of uh, certain molecules in the atmosphere. And these molecules are those with, uh, which we call greenhouse gases, like carbon dioxide and uh, methane, nitrous oxide, etc. So it's just they happen that they vibrate at the same frequencies as the infrared light, and they are capable of trapping it and uh, sending this radiation uh, back to Earth. But that's what we call the greenhouse effect. So since the uh, Keelan started uh, measuring the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere in the 50s, he realized that it is indeed going up quite fast. Our continuous record showed that, well, from what, 360 ppm in the parts per million in the atmosphere at that time, now we are at uh, 412. And uh, with some uh, Geological research with uh, uh, understanding of uh, 
understand in the atmosphere and specifically the carbon dioxide and methane carbon dioxide that's uh, mostly content in the atmosphere we've uh, obtained records uh, over a very long periods in the past of the uh, amount of this gas in the atmosphere so if you look at this i just have uh, a quick just have a quick yeah. question on that does does water vapor in the air you know basically you know high relative humidity does water vapor in the air behave in practice like a greenhouse gas and the reason why i ask this is because i've had the experience of being in a place like for instance like singapore or indonesia or malaysia where you're very close to the equator it's uh, incredibly high humidity all the time and you really feel as if like the the heat of the day gets it feels like it gets trapped in the water vapor in the air and so even like hours after the sun has gone down you still feel as if the heat of the sun is not only radiating out of the sidewalk and the buildings and you know the stone structures and things like that and the rocks it also feels like it's radiating from the actual air right and by contrast if i've been to places where you're in the middle of a desert uh, where there's incredibly low humidity and there it can be super super hot and as soon as the sun is gone the temperature just like drops right down and so there's there's stored heat in the sand and the rocks but uh, as soon as that is expended uh, the temperature goes down really really rapidly so my, my question was just to, to interrupt you there is does water vapor act in practice like a greenhouse gas uh, well first of all water vapor it not just acts as a greenhouse gas it is a greenhouse gas and one of the most powerful ones it's not exactly related to the uh, desert effect which you described because uh, for the desert uh, this large uh, margin in temperature between day and night is a uh, manifestation of the latent heat rather than actually uh, water vapor acting as a greenhouse gas. But water vapor is a greenhouse gas, <clears throat> but it wouldn't be really uh, something what you feel as a, a perceived uh, heat from uh, increased humidity. That's a slightly different story. It's a manifestation of a different property. But this aside, water vapor indeed is a greenhouse gas. It's not generally, uh, well, it is, of course, considered in all the research, but it's not the matter of the uh, major concern because uh, the amount of uh, water vapor on uh, the planet Earth does not necessarily increase, <clears throat> at least uh, from the human activities. It does yeah. increase, and it doesn't. And it doesn't persist. It doesn't persist in the atmosphere for that yes, long. Yes, and it's, it, it is. It is very variable gas too. So it uh, really condenses and uh, evaporates on a very fast basis. And on top of that, <clears throat> it's linked to too many other properties of the atmosphere, to the precipitation, 
to the removal of carbon dioxide, for example, as a, during the condensation, etc., etc. So, uh, of course, it is a greenhouse gas. Of course, it is considered. However, it wouldn't be the key player in uh, our uh, fight with climate change because there is no much we can change about it, and it does not affect the affect the uh, climate change as much as the carbon dioxide would staying in the atmosphere for thousands of years. Yeah, but you, 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 one of the points that you made, which I think you know, a lot of people, probably a lot of our listeners are, are unaware of, and it's, it's a very scary point, a profound point, is that it, you, I think a lot of people understand that, yes, okay, our cars are choking out fossil fuel emissions and we understand like okay our, our industry is like choking out with a smokestack and you know various things like that and that is like putting these uh, these um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere which are warming the climate but what you were explaining is that there um, once you start warming the climate you initiate all sorts of uh, bad kind of feedback loops and you there are all these sort of big um, caches of carbon in the environment stored in various places which uh, can be released because of this warming that has nothing to do with you driving your car or or industry this is stuff that is like naturally you know so to speak uh, stored in different places. And a lot of this is up north, right? Yes, of course, you're absolutely right. And uh, that is one of the biggest problems and probably one of the reasons why uh, the climate change in the Arctic is uh, so much uh, faster happening than it happens everywhere else. And on top of that, yes, of course, we talked about the uh, permafrost and the carbon within the permafrost and the amount of carbon which is currently locked in the permafrost is uh, more than twice, almost three times more than all the carbon which is currently in the atmosphere. So if you release all that, <laughs> it uh, unlikely happens uh, tomorrow or actually in the unlikely happens simultaneously at all, but even the part which we are releasing from there because of all, all this acceleration, uh, natural acceleration of processes in the Arctic is still huge. And that also I've measured myself and uh, give my hand for it. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've measured the, the amount that's coming out. So even if we were to drastically reduce the amount of uh, driving that we do. We all switch to electric cars. We all switch to to trains. We, we burn way less. We start buying local. We do all the things we're supposed to do. We get solar panels on our houses. We have uh, wind turbines, all this stuff, renewable resource. Even if we do all of those things, if I understand you correctly, we have already initiated a bunch of dangerous processes and we're going to have to deal with them for the next couple centuries. Uh, uh, look, uh, of course, this is correct. So it's true. And uh, 
we cannot undo the climate change. And it's also true, uh, we will have to face the harmful consequences of our reckless living, and not in some future, but now already, and for many generations to come. But it doesn't mean that we are doomed, really. And even less, this means that there's nothing we can do about it. We can and need to start living uh, without destroying our uh, own home, I would say. So, uh, but what, yes, what can we actually, what, what can we change? But like you said, if we uh, drive on uh, electric cars uh, and start really think of things we are doing, uh, the f- uh, simple example I can give is, uh, I'm doing this exercise actually with my students with uh, different degree of success. Uh, there are things which we uh, do not think of while living. But if you would only start doing this, the change will be uh, tangible and clear. The example I have is uh, not about carbon, specifically more about water, because water is also in peril at the moment, right? So the water crisis is uh, looming for the planet. It's gonna happen in like 30 years from now. It's a different question, but it uh, is related to climate change as well. So uh, if you look like consciously, look at the amount of water we are wasting, or even better, if we only start counting the amount of water we ourselves using every day, uh, we will see that it is something which we can easily change in our habits without even perceiving that what we are doing. I'll give you an example. Uh, most of water we use is actually so-called hidden water, right? It's the water which is uh, hidden in the products we use and in our diets, in our shopping habits. So even if we just switch uh, as simple as that, one cup of coffee to one cup of tea, we will be consciously saving water. Why? Exactly. Just because the production of uh, one takes less water than production of the other. And the differences with different types of meat is huge. Like beef is the worst in this case, like poultry is probably the one of the best. These small changes uh, only need to be known and accounted for. So if we only start thinking of not wasting, whether to be uh, our use of cars, whether to be our use of water or water containing products, and almost at every uh, single thing we do in life, if we only think of what we are doing and how it does affect uh, our home, the planet we live in, the change will be immense. Hmm. And you, you actually think it'll be like, because I know, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had for years now a lot of 
uh, debates with uh, my friend Michael, and he lives in China. He lives in Wuhan, and he he moved there from Canada, and he he fell in love, and he settled down, and he has a kid there, and he's married and stuff like that. And so he's become a, a really he's a very enthusiastic supporter of of China. Uh, not in not in a blind way. I mean, he definitely sees like the problems for sure, and he's he does not uh, in any way try and excuse the problems. But we talk about climate change and global warming and the environment a lot, and he says, and I've told him basically, you know, sort of a version of exactly what you just said, you know, about like oh, here's these changes we can make in our individual lives and in our you know, our consumption habits and what we eat and how we get to work and all this stuff. And, and he just basically says, Oh, this is total like Western Protestant bullshit. Like it's the same thing as like, it's the same thing as telling poor people, Oh, you're poor. And uh, because you spend all your money on alcohol and lottery tickets and uh, you don't save well. And, you you have bad morals and uh, you need better like practices and that's gonna like save your you know save the life of the working class or of like African American people in like you know in ghettos that oh they just need better culture and they they have to save more and you know like pass the marshmallow test and all this stuff and he says you know what like these problems are so big. And they're so systemic that what we need is we need governments to act. We need big international bodies to act. And uh, he says, you know, this whole focus on individual virtuous behavior, this is exactly what the fossil fuel companies want. This is part of their game plan to say that, like, it's all about individual virtue in the same way that, like, you know, people who are, gaming the system in a capitalist sense they have an interest in saying that all the problems of the workers are because of their individual bad behavior <laughs> like when in fact when in fact like and so he was saying like and he he's shown me pictures of where he lives in wuhan it used to be uh when he first moved there like at least like one third of the days per year they would have to wear masks because the pollution was so terrible and there was like no green spaces and there was horrible traffic and congestion. And now like, you know, the same way that you have these like really beautiful pictures that I've seen of the North that you've taken over the years. He has all these pictures he's taken of Wuhan um, over the years. And it's unbelievable. It's like become super, super green and beautiful and flowers and trees they have like almost no traffic anymore. Everybody takes the train to work because it's super, super fast. And it gets, you know, gets people from A to B really well. And people are living a much more green life, but it's not done at the level of like individual Protestant virtue. It's done at the, uh, at, at a kind of <laughs> basically an authoritarian government that is just sort of, you know, thinking long term and like making these decisions, and um, and it seems to be in many places in China working really really well. And he said, you know, I think like um, basically 
the Western democracies, because of the way that they're structured, it's so easy for powerful interests like the fossil fuel industry to just corrupt the system. You know, it's so easy for them to insert themselves and corrupt the system. Whereas he said, like in a place like China, um, you know, they make a decision. Climate change is happening. It's a really big deal. It's not good. Pollution is a really big deal. It's not good. We need to fix it. Here's what we're fucking doing. <laughs> That's it. You know, like they just, they just do it. And there's no way for somebody to pay off the Canadian Conservative Party or the the UK Conservative Party or the American Republican Party and just like totally corrupt the entire party and get them to push for something which is like good for them but terrible for the country i mean what do you think about that you know what <clears throat> first of all uh, a disclaimer i'm no expert in this area but there are two things which i uh, intimately understand uh, one is uh, you know first of all Governments and companies are uh, made of people. And if every individual person will grow up with uh, understanding of what is right and what is wrong in this sense, eventually they will end up in those governments and companies. And another thing uh, which uh, comes to mind in this case, It's, uh, well, regardless of uh, whether it's like government-ordered behavior or it is uh, some your, uh, like you put it, uh, Protestant behavior of uh, self-conscious, which makes you uh, to do the right thing, at the end, we will come to a better world still. So if it's mm -hmm. working for them, good for them. If you do it the other way, but we still do the same thing, okay, good for us. Yeah, well, I guess it's it's the question of like, can what questions, what social problems are best solved by the individual, right? what problems, social problems are best solved by the family or by like, you know, a small community and which ones are best solved by, let's say a municipal government or a provincial government or a federal government or an international body. So it seems to me that like there's different levels of complexity for a problem. And sometimes if you, if you give an individual a problem that really sort of should be solved by a higher order of the, the community, then you might get like, you know, a terrible result. It's like, you know, the, the, comedian, <laughs> Joe, the comedian Joe Rogan, he has this hilarious uh, bit in one of his stand-up comedy routines on Netflix. I think it's called, I think it's called Strange Times. And he says like, you know, you think you're so smart, but he goes, if I put you in the middle of the jungle right now, How long, all by yourself, he goes, how long before you can send me an email? 
<laughs> like, like, you know, can you build like a, a cell phone? Can you build like all these things? No, of course not, because these are not problems that an individual can solve. This is like a, a complicated process of yeah, of that, culture and technology and language. And so the 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 argument that my friend Michael says and that uh, what is what is her name uh, Naomi Klein in her book uh, This Changes Everything which is all about like climate change and everything where she says that uh, she says it's a complete like red herring. It's a total waste of time to focus on what individuals can do in their own behavior. Like we need like government change, right? Like big, huge sweeping things. Well, might be. Uh, I personally do believe that uh, individual choice is important and uh, it is especially important when it uh, happens at a societal scale but maybe you're right yeah <laughs> maybe we, we need well, they, orders <laughs> yeah I, I don't know i mean I, I i'm i'm disturbed by it i mean there's a wonderful public debate that, or discussion that sam harris had with um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for his work in behavioral economics. And um, he asked him, this is, you know, he was very old at this point. It's like, you know, he didn't do very many uh, interviews after that, I don't think. But um, he, he said to him, he said, what is the biggest fear that you have for the future? And without any hesitation, this beautiful old man, this, uh, you know, <laughs> with a thick kind of Israeli accent and everything, he said, uh, he said, oh, I think that climate change is such a, an existential threat to our species. And I am worried that my preferred form of government, which is liberal democracy, um, I'm worried that our that my preferred form of government is just not going to be up to the task. That uh, that basically, um, you know, that a country like China is is probably going to be more likely to do the right things and make the right changes in time um, than liberal democracies. Uh, and he said that's, you know, liberal democracies are really good at doing like lots and lots of things. But uh, when it comes to responding to a big existential threat, um, he said, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if we're up to it. We're just so easily corrupted by special interest groups and by, you know, the Mitch McConnells of the world, you know, who are very good at like, basically turning a democracy into a, uh, you know, a, a vetocracy, right? Where it's like rule by a veto, like rule by an intolerant minority that basically can impose their will on everybody else by just sort of filibustering or, you know, preventing everybody else from talking. I, you know, I don't know. But uh, the, the, the last question I wanted to ask you, uh, which I understand is a huge question, but uh, you another one of your 
specialties fields is this fascinating field of uh, microbial ecology or what I've heard other people sometimes refer to the same thing as uh, environmental microbiology. But I, I like micro microbial ecology much more. I think it's more precise. But uh, so can you sort of explain to you know, the, the elevator version to our listeners of um, what is uh, microbial ecology and why is it so important to understanding all of this? How many hours do I have? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we've got another like, we've got another like 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, in terms of climate change, specifically, because you know, uh, you may speak of microbial ecology as a uh, certainly emerging field of science right now, uh, for a simple reason. Uh, we only right now just starting to understand that uh, for uh, microbial life, there is, and it should be a very similar type of uh, classification as we do have for uh, higher organisms. So we only right just now starting to organize the microbial world into uh, something which could be eventually understood, let's put it this way. Because, uh, well, the amount of microbial organisms is uh, immense on the planet, right? And, uh, well, it would be actually immense even if you uh, take a single human body. Inside our guts, we have uh, the enormous amount of microbes and our bodies only function because of uh, all those microorganisms. And that is the case for uh, essentially all living organisms. Most of uh, uh, functional uh, threats in living organisms are linked to the uh, microbial community within them. But uh, to put it to scale, let's say, uh, I'll tell you an amazing story about the microbes and climate change. And uh, these are not microbes per se, there's uh, slightly greater organisms, which we call phytoplankton. Right, but the phytoplankton uh, and one other thing are effectively acting as uh, a thermostat for the entire planet. So the uh, other part of this thermostat is uh, volcanoes, and uh, they are linked a very intricate way. Well, relatively simple way, so. Put it in a like step by step picture. Uh, we have, let's say, uh, oceans, right? Uh, and oceans absorb carbon from the atmosphere, and plankton use this carbon to grow. Right? When the plankton dies, eventually it falls to the ocean floor, and in thousands of years it's transformed into rocks, right? So that is also dissolved carbon uh, in the ocean, which is uh, removed by some other organisms, including corals, some organisms on top of the corals, 
uh, other uh, sea creatures. So anyway, uh, when all those organisms die, they uh, they remains effectively build up on the uh, seabed, right? uh, eventually turning into rocks, into limestone. And in this way, a huge amount of carbon dioxide are removed from the atmosphere and locked away into the seafloor. <clears throat> and uh, if this would be the end of the story, actually, that uh, the planet would be cooling steadily and become colder and colder all the time because they do absorb huge amount of carbon dioxide. But then uh, all this carbon eventually ends up at the seafloor and uh, at uh, this tectonic cycle, this uh, subduction, subduction zones where tectonic plates go underneath uh, other plates, continental plates uh, and collide. So eventually uh, this all this carbon and carbonate rocks rocks containing carbon from dead plankton like limestone are carried deep into the earth uh, eventually they will uh, they become uh, so deep they uh, start to be heated broken down and allowing uh, carbon dioxide uh, find its way back to the surface uh, in the form of seepage or, uh, or uh, through uh, volcanoes so that is called a long-term carbon cycle. So uh, as you can imagine, we're talking about uh, thousands and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of years. So uh, microbial life in uh, combination with uh, uh, geological activities like tectonic cycle, the carbon cycle, truly does control the temperature of the planet. So just to recapitulate very quickly, so make sure I'm clear about this. So you have a, let's say, a massive volcanic eruption, which just it takes all of this like uh, gas and all this carbon and throws it into the atmosphere. That uh, a whole bunch of that carbon lands on the oceans, where it causes a, a huge bloom of these phytoplankton which incorporate the carbon into their bodies, and then they eventually die and their bodies fall to the seafloor. And so the carbon, which was choked out into the atmosphere by the volcanoes, is a bunch of it is now uh, safely back into the earth for a while. Uh, there, is, there are a few steps actually, which missed in this picture because they will Canals, they too pump uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Okay. And uh, it's uh, rain which washes it out mostly. And then plants draw it to the soil or uh, water which is percolating into the ground and reacts with the rain, uh, draws it down in a form of acid, actually, the carbonic, carbonic acid. And this acid uh, eats away rock and uh, as a weathering into the carbonate and carbonates uh, end up into the sea. Or uh, okay. carbon from the atmosphere being mixed with the surface ocean water and plankton can reach it. So this is like more... Uh, large-scale process than just one volcano, which is uh, happened to be close to the ocean. Uh, 
Okay. But in general, yes, you're right. So that's uh, the uh, volcano is pumping uh, mostly carbon dioxide out of the soil, and uh, phytoplankton does use it to grow. And when it dies and ends up at the seafloor, eventually becomes rock and uh, goes deep until it completes the cycle. So this is one of the many ways in which the microbial uh, you know, sort of, and we're, we're thinking of that in an expansive sense that will include phytoplankton, that the microbial uh, ecology is actually regulating the temperature of planet Earth, the surface temperature. That is the example how the microbial life with uh, what the life cycle of uh, sometimes less than a minute uh, regulates climate on a scale of, uh, on a geologic scale, on a scale of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. Of course, there are shorter processes, like those which we are uh, looking up at the, in the Arctic, which is uh, very straightforward. The uh, microbial life breaks up uh, the carbon, which is currently stored in the uh, bottoms of the small lakes. And when this microbial organisms like methanotrophs or uh, methanogens in this case, archaea, uh, break up this carbon, it's been, uh, of course, released as gas and gas wouldn't stay at the bottom, right? It will uh, go uh, back through water into the atmosphere. And uh, immediately there is another part of this same microbial life, except uh, now there are uh, organisms which use this carbon in either form of methane or carbon dioxide, uh, for living, for growing, and they do uh, uptake part of it. So not all of it ends up in the atmosphere. So this this short, let's say, cycle as well, which is ongoing within every single uh, water body. Uh, speaking of those transparent lakes, uh, which you have seen, uh, they might be oligotrophic and devoid of uh, most of life, but it, like I said, it does not mean there is no microbial life in them. And since they are sometimes on, uh, often actually rocky lakes, like so they're uh, in rocky regions, it means that uh, you mentioned acid rains, but even without acid rains, there could be some weathering processes happening uh, between the water of the lake and uh, the rock, uh, which is at the bottom of this lake, which means Again, there will be a large amount of carbon in this lake, which will, uh, with the microbial life in this lake only, may uh, easily be uh, working in both space. That's why I was so hesitant to say whether they are emitters or absorbers, because both is possible. It depends on what kind of microbial life is there and what is microbial ecology of this particular uh, water body. So if you have if you have all of these, as you say, like thermos, the, like a thermostats, that you have these systems that have been in place for uh, some of them, you know, millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millennia, that are all sort of regulate the temperature of the earth. So let's say if we take an analogy to the human body, right? 
if if uh, if a if a guy if a human being consumes a certain amount of alcohol ethyl alcohol in a uh, you know over a certain amount in a certain amount of time then the the liver's ability to filter out that ethyl alcohol is overwhelmed and so the alcohol splits uh, spills out into the bloodstream and it goes to the heart and it goes to the lungs and then you get uh, a buzz, right? You're, you get, that's how you get like drunk, right? So what happens to, by analogy, what happens to our climate? What happens to our, our ecosystems when the climate gets carbon drunk, where the, the sort of the, the systems that are in place to regulate, as you refer to them as like uh, thermostats, like when the, the systems that are in place to um, to kind of filter out carbon from the uh, from the environment when they are overwhelmed and the system becomes carbon drunk, uh, what is that going to feel like for us? We have a very specific example and perhaps even two actually. Uh, it's called, uh, well, actually, on, uh, some language uh, between scientists, it's, uh, sometimes it's even called uh, exactly like that, the thermostat malfunction. <laughs> when the Earth was uh, entirely covered with ice, you call it a snowball Earth. And mm -hmm. it, it happens at least twice in our history. And the reason for that was exactly that. So the... Uh, uh, weathering was uh, overcoming the amount of carbon emitted by volcanoes and the atmosphere depleted of carbon did not hold enough uh, infrared radiation to warm up the Earth and the Earth cooled down uh, so much that uh, the entire planet was covered with ice. All the way down to the equators and everything? Entirely. Snowball. Snowball it was. <laughs> that is completely wild. That is completely wild. So how did life survive those, those times? There was no much life at the time, to be honest. Uh, but there was some, of course. And uh, apparently some of the life at least survived in the oceans. Okay. So under, the, under the ice. Under the ice, right. Perhaps there was also some life uh, of terrestrial life in some uh, underground uh, worlds or uh, some caves. Well, besides of microbial life, of course, because uh, you know, if you're, again, if you're talking about microbes, which we are only starting to really uh, study properly at the moment, and at the moment, I mean, like past less than ten years, so it's pretty mm -hmm. recent development. Uh, actually, in fact, about 70% of uh, microorganisms live in the Earth's crust, right? Uh, it's, and only 30%, about 30% is living outside of the actual crust. Just absolutely wild. Absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've heard these, these crazy stories where they find a cave that's, you know, far below the Earth and they just find all of these creatures, like all of these, not just like microbial communities that we've never even heard of before, but you know, some vertebrates and like higher 
organisms, which have been in some cases just cut off from all the rest of the ecosystems that we're aware of for sometimes millions of years, just living in this cave, living off of like thermal energy or like just really strange ecosystems that are not directly related to the sun. <laughs> you know what, actually, uh, being a partial, at least a biologist by training, uh, I cannot uh, like hold myself but to note in this uh, context that, in fact, uh, this life, the life without uh, oxygen, specifically oxygen, actually, uh, is probably uh, the correct one. And we are the mistake. Because oxygen is, <laughs> <laughs> is a toxin, really. It's a highly toxic material, highly toxic oxidizing material, and one of the main reasons why we actually do not live uh, very long. Right? Because our, our entire organism is oxidized too fast and uh, is dying off eventually. If it wouldn't be the case that... Uh, potentially they would uh, live much longer. And for all in the entire universe as we know it, uh, oxygen is a toxin. <laughs> <laughs> and the oxygen, the oxygen in our environment was created by microbial activity, right? Uh, it is very likely, yes. Archaea are, uh, well, cyanobacteria specifically at the beginning of uh, times, about 35 uh, billion years ago, it's like the, uh, approximately like 3, 3.5 billion. What is, what is half a billion years? <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, so about that time, uh, it truly this thing that uh, cyanobacteria uh, started to uh, create oxygen. And eventually, it, uh, well, it, it's also coincided with the uh, time when the uh, atmosphere and our uh, geomagnetic field really uh, established at the current form, which uh, effectively allowed, well, lowered down the uh, amount of uh, levels of radiation on the surface of the planet and allowed the life forms to actually come to the uh, surface eventually. Uh, and leave the oceans. So, and at that time, with those oceans, with those uh, uh, large uh, cyanobacterial colonies, uh, probably that was the time when the oxygen was uh, created and eventually filled uh, the atmosphere up to what one percent as they have right now. And so, then everything who wanted every life form had to adjust to this new. Oxygen no, they died. Rich. A, lot of, a lot of them died. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, probably the first massive extinction uh, event on the planet Earth when the oxygen appeared and all previous life forms which did not depend on it, like archaea, etc., uh, <laughs> simply died off or <laughs> completely hit, wild. Hit somewhere. Yeah, there's uh, so the final kind of question that I, I always like to ask, um, especially scientists like you, is, uh, you know, whenever they do like these rankings every year, where they ask like a bunch of different disciplines um, and they, they try and figure out how happy 
and people are with their job and their profession and things like that. Usually, uh, journalism is at one end of the spectrum where they're extremely unhappy. Um, it's uh, mor- morale is very is very low in that uh, in that field, and then usually on the other end of the spectrum, there's um, I think usually almost every year the the top one is genetics. Uh, genetics because it's just it's a field that's growing so rapidly there's so many new discoveries happening practically every year that uh, people who work in that field um, report that they are extremely happy they love their job they love their community they love you know other geneticists (laughs) they 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 have very (laughs) they have very very high rates of happiness so um, I guess my question is obviously you know the fields that you're a part of because they're connected to climate change and global warming there's this really kind of like don don you know kind of hanging over a lot of these fields but as a, as a scientist who's just really fascinated with figuring out how the world works and understanding all of these things what are what are to you sort of maybe one or two of the the most exciting things that are happening in your field and, and, and sort of what do you think what do you think the interesting new breakthroughs uh, what would you guess the, the interesting new breakthroughs are going to be in the next you know the next couple of years or next te- next 10 years which are just gonna like you know game changers because you you mentioned that like in your research up north you're actually uh, fashioning your your own sort of instruments and tools and things like that. So you're you figuring out a lot of new stuff. <laughs> so, like, what do you think? What do you think the big breakthroughs are going to be in the next decade? You know what? Uh, in my field specifically, the biggest breakthrough which we expect in in this well, some time from now, uh, I would say uh, it would be, it should be, in my opinion, at least, if we really come with some kind of taxonomy for uh, microbial organisms, because that is what is currently being developed, and uh, that is what is urgently needed. Because uh, right now we do not even know how to classify microorganisms. And uh, if we do not know this, we do not just do not cannot really uh, think of uh, their function properly, their uh, biogeography properly, and all those things are absolutely required in order to understand how they function. And we already do know that uh, they are at the bottom of many processes, if not all. Uh, possible processes on this planet. So this is something which we really need to uh, and have, and uh, having that will probably uh, be a big step forward into the microbial ecology specifically. Well, besides yeah, that's the, it's it's amazing yeah. to me that it's almost like you know we're going in a time machine when it comes to microbial life. It's like we're going in a time machine back to the 18th century to like Linnea, where he's like actually explaining what is the difference between a bird and a 
jaguar you know like like, the, like you know yeah. mapping out mapping out uh, the animal kingdom right yeah yeah and uh, really the sad thing is that we're not pretty much ahead of uh, line at the moment actually wow <laughs> <laughs> we know about as much about microbes as he did <laughs> that's amazing so i mean and is that because it, I mean, we've had the tools to observe them for a long time. Is it just because most of them are in the Earth's crust, 70%? Or is it because we, you know, were we just like not looking in the right place? Were we not asking the right questions? Like, because we've had, we've had very sensitive microscopes for a long time. So we can, presumably, we can see these things if we want to. Uh, to see things, it's one thing, but to dis- Distinguish things. It's a very different thing because uh, you may uh, well uh, they are not as like uh, differently from different from one another by looking as for example you know elephant and the mouse right. Uh, we should really think of them as uh, in terms of their function, in terms of their internal structure in terms of many other things which are not so easily uh, seen. And of course, uh, these kind of tools are uh, not uh, very long ago started away, started to be available to our study. Okay. So, yeah, so I, know, I know what you, yeah. yeah. I know what you mean, because I've, I've had oh, this situation where I went with somebody who was uh, an expert in grasses. And we were looking at, and to me, I, I thought I was just looking at a, a lawn in somebody's backyard. And it just looked like uniform green grass to me, right? But he, just by looking at it, uh, identified 12 different kinds of grasses that were in, you know. And so, so you're saying that, like, when we're looking under a microscope, even if we can see these microbial organisms, you know, if you don't know what to look for, it might look like all the same thing when in fact you're looking at like 10,000 different things or a million different things, right? Or 10 that, uh, the amount. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so it's, for now we only have cultured species uh, more or less known, but the cultured species uh, are taking what, uh, one, no, uh, 0. 0.000001 of the uh, entire tree, right? Uh, the tiny amount, only the tiny amount of uh, microorganisms being uh, classified by now. Wow. <laughs> so so we, once, we, once we work out the taxonomy for microbial life, that is gonna be a huge leap forward that will allow us to figure out a lot of other things, maybe. I'd say even uh, to properly agree on uh, what kind of taxonomy we are looking at, looking for, would be already a big step. Because right now there are a few different approaches to uh, microbial taxonomy, and uh, it is hard to say which one is uh, more beneficial than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, up until recently, we were still sort of thinking of fungi as being plants. 
like they were still considered under the umbrella of biology or botany or something like that which is i mean and that's that's crazy because that's like you know so much of life depends on uh, on these these fungi and everything some people still call uh, cyanobacteria blue green algae I'm sure I called it that like very recently. Anyway, this has you, been absolutely <laughs> yeah. The I I think this has been absolutely fascinating, Alex. And I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I I hope um, as you you know I know that I asked you before that we we did this interview. If you could talk about the new uh, IPCC report and you, I understand that you've been sworn to secrecy and you're not allowed to talk about it, but when it does come out, I would really love it if you could um, come on the podcast again and sort of just explain it to, to me and to our listeners, because I, you know, it's such an important thing and it usually just gets, you know, pretty much ignored by almost all of the media uh, because it's, it's it's not something that it's not like you know Donald Trump. You can't like or Vladimir Putin. You can't reduce it to a, a soundbite and make people excited about it very easily. It you have to calm down and like. So I I would love it if you would come back uh, when um, when that's done and explain it to all of us because uh, it's something we really need to know. <laughs> we well, need to. Uh, it's not as much as a horror story as this Trump, but <laughs> kind of. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, have a have a great yeah. evening, and thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom with thank us. Thank you for inviting. It was a really pleasure talking to you this evening. <laughs> thank All you. All right. So much, Take guys. care. <laughs> Bye. Bye.